1: I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 291. Joining me today is accomplished public land deer hunter, Joe Elsinger, to break down how he patterns locations instead of bucks, and the tools he uses to analyze deer movements and correlation with weather-related factors. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today, as I just mentioned, we've got Joe Elsinger, also commonly known as the professor. And we call him that because he is a thinker. He is uh, he's an analyzer. He's he's a detail oriented problem solver, I think would be a good way to put it when it comes to chasing mature bucks. And he's doing this on public land in the big woods of Wisconsin and up in Iowa He's been on the show a couple times before. He's proven to be a fan favorite guest, just a really good educator. I think something about the way he uh, communicates makes it easily take in but uh, but powerful stuff. So episode number 150 in particular is a must listen if you haven't already checked that one out as it covers Joe's kind of total all around hunting strategy. But today we're focusing on one particular topic, which is patterning deer. Or, or I guess at least at least that's what I thought we were going to talk about when I started this conversation with him. Because I thought, okay, let's dive deep into patterning deer. But what I quickly discovered was that's, that's not really what Joe is focusing on. Rather, he's all about patterning specific locations. And then he's using a, a really detailed kind of process of collecting and analyzing data to help him do that to help him understand when to hunt certain spots throughout the year and in different prime places to be all throughout the year so it's not just about when to kill this buck when's the best day to go in after him it's what's the best place to be no matter what time of year it is and man it, it's just a really interesting way of thinking about this um, and it's different than what most other people talk about and really the way I talk about this stuff too so so this is kind of a new idea for me that I'm definitely going to be taking to heart this year so that's what we're going to be talking about we're also going to be discussing the tools he's created to analyze all sorts of data like this he's got a really interesting set of Analyses he runs on trail camera data. So, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the lessons he's learned and the trends he's uncovered when he's studying all these different types of deer sightings and photos and then comparing them to changes in things like temperature and pressure and the moon and much more. So, man, I'll tell you what, if you enjoy geeking out over deer, today's episode is for you. That said, before we get to it, we are going to take a really quick break. And then we will get to our chat with Joe. All right. So with me now back on the show for I think the third time maybe is Joe Elsinger. We like to call you the professor, Joe. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming back. (laughs) Thank you. I'm happy to be here since since the professor uh, name was applied to you in the podcast a couple of years ago. Do you have anyone yet that makes jokes about, like, tweed vests and pipes and and glasses or anything like that for you? I think I've I've gotten a couple of those comments, yeah,
2: and that's (laughs) definitely not me. Anyone who's hung out with me, that's definitely not me. So, (laughs) uh,
1: yeah, maybe in another 20 years. That's that's good. Glad no one's giving you a hard time. Thank Andy May for that one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad you are back with us because each time I've gotten a chat with you, it's just been super interesting for me, and we've we've always gotten great feedback. People have found your insights really helpful, and today I'm sure we're gonna we're gonna get the same kind of thing. But I'm excited, and I kind of want to just jump right into it, Joe. Hope you don't mind me uh, avoiding yeah. foreplay and just going right to the main event because Go for it. we got a cool topic today of patterning deer and correlating deer activity to other outside factors and this idea came about because I don't know a month or two ago me and Dan were doing a podcast just the two of us and we were talking about um, how I how both of us really are looking at annual patterns and looking through trail camera data and stuff and I happened to bring up the fact that I excuse me I had had made kind of a, a pretty rudimentary spreadsheet in which I was tracking all the daylight pictures and daylight observations I had of a certain buck and then a, a certain number of other variables, weather-related things. Um, so I was talking about that to Dan, and then a bunch of people asked me to share that spreadsheet. So I shared a picture of it on Instagram, and I think maybe that's what you saw because then you reached out to me and said, yeah. hey, um, you know, I do the same thing. You might remember we talked about it a little bit a couple of years ago, but you you, yeah. you shared with me this document, and and you just take things – to a whole new level as far as tracking deer movement and all the different um, correlating variables. And uh, just the, the document itself kind of blew my mind. The level of analysis you put in here, trying to understand what different things impact deer movement, how you're tracking these things, um, the level of detail and analysis is just, it's, it's fascinating. And I think it would really help people because a lot of folks know Uh, to pay attention like oh yeah I think you know cold fronts will make deer move more or I think such and such thing and there's lots of different theories um not a lot of people I know actually go about tracking it in a way that can be quantified um but I guess if you go by the by the what's the word um not nickname. There's a fancier word for nickname I'm blanking on right now. But if people call you the professor, you should probably quantify your work <laughs> and you do that. Yeah.
2: Um, and I'm an engineer by trade, so that's my disclaimer is I'm a numbers guy. I'm a nerd. I'm happy to admit that I'm a nerd. So it's definitely not for everybody. But yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah, you are spot on and how that how that, um why i passed it on to you so as i mentioned to you before we started recording i was a little i'm a little behind on your podcast which i love um i've you know listened to every single one but i'm a couple months behind And here a few weeks ago i finally got to that podcast where you were talking about uh tracking that spreadsheet with uh or your you know how you've been tracking observations with dan
1: and yeah that's exactly i was like you know what i think i need to send that to mark so and here we are yeah. It's it's spurred this bigger conversation. So so what I wanna do here, Joe, is is talk in detail about kinda of, you know, we, we spoke briefly about patterning deer a couple of years ago, but now I want to go really deep into everything you're thinking about when it comes to understanding deer movement, maybe understanding specific deer and all of these things you're tracking and monitoring and, and trying to make decisions based off of. So to kick it off, I think I first wanna like lay some groundwork. Lay some, Get some definitions, some some foundations out here. So when I say something like pattern a deer, when you think yep. about patterning a deer, what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, it used to mean um, probably what the first thing that pops into the head of everybody else. I used to look at individual deer, and I still do. Don't get me wrong. But now I've kind of um, – that's actually pretty – very hard everybody knows it's very very hard to pattern individual deer um bucks have individual personalities uh some are easier to pattern they may have a very small core area um not, not necessarily easy to kill and other ones have huge core areas and they seem to drift around in many many different bedding areas across you know thousands of acres and everything in between so patterning an individual deer you know yeah I've done it um I've killed a few deer that I can say I went to a spot to kill them and I've killed them but you're going to fail more often than you succeed um so now I really look um at locations and I try to identify um the, the optimal times for locations um and so I'm really patterning locations um and I found a that's actually more helpful to me than when I was just going around and trying to figure out, okay, this deer's here and he's going to be over there tomorrow. And then, then, you know, over there, uh, you know, two days from now, um, trying to figure that out. Now I look at individual locations and I keep track of the bucks in the area, but I can, uh, particularly bedding areas. Cause I hunt, um, you know, the refresher from some of the things that I've said at previous podcasts, I hunt major, vast majority public land, um, and, uh, you know, the, even the private land I hunt is generally shared with. Um, and I, I don't, hunt, I used to hunt more private land. Now I'm, I'm very little, but I, you know, no exclusive access property. So all the deer are getting pressured. Um, so it's really, you have to dial into the bedding, um, to have success, especially with mature bucks. Um, and that's what I do. So I'm trying to figure out when certain bedding areas are used. Um, and I've learned a lot about that over the last few years, um, primarily by using observations while hunting, but, uh, primarily, um, setting trail cameras in bedding or in travel routes right next to bedding, um, all fall. Uh, I used to think hanging a trail camera for four weeks straight and not touching it, um, was a long time. Now, I think that's actually short. That kind of shows how I've evolved in my thought process and now I'll put them out in, July, August, September, I've got a few cameras out already. I need to get a few more out in the next month or two, and they're going to stay there until the winter. Some of them I won't pick up till next spring. And I get these long, big chunks of data, um, and so I can sift through it, and I look at wind, temperature, barometric pressure, um, and all these, all these factors. Um, and I've learned that bedding areas, there's uh, really – strong correlations between uh some of these things and when certain bedding areas are being used and and they're being used by certain bucks certainly because i'm targeting buck bedding mature buck bedding um but that really has helped my efficiency um in targeting these these spots so you know i may have three or four months worth of data off one camera and uh you know, there's strong correlations and, hey, this bedding area is used with, you know, strong west winds, not light winds, you know, um, you know colder than average temperatures, um, things like that. Certain times of the year, you know, maybe it's mostly during the rut or maybe it's mostly in the early season. Um, I found bedding that's primarily used in hot weather, primarily used in, you know, cool weather, um, windy weather, calm weather, stable weather, um, bad, unpleasant rainy weather um it's just really
1: kind of eye-opening to me and then you're able to just be that much more efficient with your hunts then because at any given time of the year you know the the highest optimal the optimal time to be in any given area
2: yeah that's the goal and it you know it's it's never don't get me wrong i'm still far from perfection like but i've come a long ways um now i think you know give me six eight clean hunts at times that i can pick and uh, you know i can get an opportunity or two in just that many hunts on public land granted this is iowa we have a very good population mature bucks but still you know it's public land um and i would point out um i've done uh, i'm doing more and more of this research in uh, up in uh, northern wisconsin too um public land up there so it's a completely different environment but um it helps me kind of um confirm a lot of these things that it's not just an iowa thing you know that i'm able to do this i'm finding very strong trends in wisconsin as well in big woods habitat swamps and uh tamarack swamps and you know uh around clear cuts and oak flats and that kind of thing so yeah um yeah. It's, it's, uh, very interesting yeah. <laughs> to me anyway. So, oh, me too. And I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I love, um, that side of things. It's not for everybody. I know I've talked to people about it and some, you know, it sucks all the fun out of it. It's this is intended to take the fun out of it. If it's not fun to think about this, then okay, just go hunting. Yeah. But if you do like to really try to stack the deck in your favor and play the odds, you know, that's what I, that's what I love.
1: So It's, it's funny. Speaking of Iowa, I got to call out, uh, I got to call out Dan who's not with us here today, but, um, and he's not here to defend himself. So, so sorry in advance, Dan, I'm going to call you out, but last, last time or two times ago that you were on the show, Joe, um, you were talking about this idea of how you run your cameras. And then at the end of the episode, you gave both Dan and I a piece of advice and, your yep. piece of advice for Dan was don't check your camera. So often you go in there yeah, so often, check them, check them, check them. And he said, Oh, he's like, okay, I'll take your advice. And then I can confirm that he has not been taking your advice. He keeps talking yep. about going there and well, checking them. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I've been listening. So yeah, if I remember
2: right, last year he left one camera out, like all fall, he forgot to check it or maybe you forgot where it was yeah. or something. Yeah. I don't know. And then he was super excited about that, you yeah. know, like what he learned off that. And I was like, Oh, my god yeah that's well maybe he say. realizes it now i don't know <laughs> yeah it's so and that's the thing like yes there are some most of most of you know i'm not targeting food sources i'm targeting bedding you can hang cameras on the edge of the food sources and it's a lot lower impact to check them in in many circumstances i'm still leery of don't you know, regular checking anything near where i'm hunting but um and now of course you have wireless cameras and that's a whole nother um you know gives a whole nother um people that want to use them you you know that really opens up a lot of options uh for monitoring but still if you're intruding on bedding mature bucks will notice it they will uh, move accordingly they may still be in the area they might only move across the ridge but they will know you're there and they will you know make sure that they're not uh, you know they they don't have much risk from you, so um, it's uh you know uh, you can hang cameras and check them frequently near food sources. Sometimes that's certainly uh, true, but where I'm putting them, I couldn't go in and check. I would blow every you know I'd blow deer out of. I sometimes they're where I want to hunt, and I go in there and do a hunt, and that's it. But I've seen when in circumstances like that, um, I've seen the impact where like you know I'll get say three or four mature buck sightings in daylight over the course of a week. And then I'll have been in there uh, or more often because it's public land, I'll see a hunter on camera, you know, whether it's a squirrel hunter or another bow hunter or whatever coming through. And um, it's, it'll be several days. There'll be just very minimal activity and then I'll pick up again. So um, I see that all the time. Um, even during the rut, I mean, a lot of people, Oh, bucks are everywhere in the rut. Yeah, they, they, they definitely move a lot more, but they're still very intentional about where they move. Um, and, um, the, you can disturb an area and there'll be a decrease in what you'll see in front of there in in these, these high impact areas. You know, it's one thing if you're just walking along a field edge, but it's another thing if you're walking in a bedding area, 400 yards from a field or like in Northern Wisconsin, it's a, it's it's huge up there. I'll, I'll hunt on a swamp Island uh, where I'll have a camera and then like for a week I won't get a deer, you know? So, um, it's, it's
1: interesting. Oh. So, so in this kind of situation, if you're trying to pattern a location, um, before we get into all the variables you're looking at and all the data and stuff, let's first just cover, let's check the box on how you get the data, which is pictures, right? Can you just walk me through a little bit more detail of when you're trying to pattern a location, um, you know, what you're thinking about as far as where you're going to put a camera, how many cameras do you put out? Do you have like, uh, any kind of system in place? Like if you wanted to learn this bedding area, do you put several cameras around it or what's your thought process once you're
2: you're starting? So, I mean, now I have a lot of cameras. I well, By my standards, I used to think 10 cameras is a lot. Now I probably have like 15. You know, I, I just I bought a couple a year and uh, for a number of years now, and now I've built up a uh, a larger quantity. Um, but still, it's not many. And I, um, I know some people just carpet an area with cameras. Um, I've never done that, um, partly because I don't have that many cameras. I don't have, I can, I, occasionally I'll drop in a couple close to, pretty close together if i really can't figure out an area but you do have to have a baseline knowledge of how mature bucks move across um the land and i know i've talked about this before like you've got to achieve that cameras don't even necessarily tell you all that you've got to kind of learn that the hard way by a lot of hunting and a lot of time invested in uh, observing them um and then you you know i can go in and i can pick out you know if i think a bucks bedding in an area i can pick out two or three most likely travel routes in and out of that um you know and then sometimes it's one or two that seem to be clearly favored um and it's really interesting i've gotten to the point of um and anybody else can too um you can predict like oh they'll come in this way you know to bed in the morning and they'll leave that way in the evening um you know in the morning j-hook they usually do j-hook um And in the evening, they usually get up and just leave straight going to food or or wherever their destination is. So um, it's often two different directions. They don't come and go. uh, And I see that on camera, too. Um, When I'm setting a camera like on an access route into bedding, I know, Okay, well, I don't always know ahead of time. Sometimes they surprise me. But usually I get mostly morning activity or even activity, even though the deer are there all day. They don't come and go on that camera, you know, they're, it's, they heavily favor either morning or evening. And if my camera's in the bedding, I'll get a lot of midday movement. Mm-hmm. Um, bucks are up and moving midday more than you'd believe. They don't move very far usually especially on uh, public land and stuff but they do get up they have to get up biologically um they have to stand up they cannot lay on the ground for 12 hours straight from what i understand or they'll die so they have to get up browse relieve themselves and bed back down um so i'll get them doing that all the time if my camera is literally right you know say watching a cluster of beds or right in between a couple of beds so Um, another reason, uh, deer get up and move. And this is another big indicator of keyed in on is temperature. Um, as the temperature changes over the course of the day, deer will move, say it's hot weather, they will move to the coolest spot. It's kind of temperature based bedding. And that's, um, it's, there's actually some really strong trends there. Um, you know, they will seek cool when it's hot and they will seek warmer areas when it's cold and, you know, getting out of the elements, they'll seek the thermal cover. Um, and that'll change over the day, you know, they may be, I've, I've uh, put cameras over, over individual beds, and I'll get deer consistently, like, they'll bed there up until 10 a.m., and then they'll get up and leave, because it gets too sunlit and warm in, the say, the summer months, and they'll, they'll be moving to a more shaded, cooler area, so, um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, and all those little, you know, there's no one thing that oh you know you can use this and all of a sudden you can kill big bucks there's all these little layers you can put together and um it's fascinating i won't i'm not even i'm definitely not an expert um on it, but I've started to kind of grasp the the overall uh, picture they still surprise me um surprised me a lot, but yeah that's so I'm taking <clears throat> what I'm doing here um you know I'll leave a camera say last year I had roughly a dozen cameras sprinkled across three or four counties in Iowa and, you know, 10,000 acres of public land up in Wisconsin. Um, and not each, I had less cameras up in Wisconsin, but, um, and pull them, pull the cards. And literally, um, so I, this be me being a nerd over the years, I used to in a spreadsheet format, enter the date, enter the time, enter my estimated Uh, age class of the buck. Um, To me, that's very important because different age class of bucks uh, act differently. Um, In Iowa, once they hit four years old, I think they really start to act differently. Up in Wisconsin, I see that change more along the three-year-old. And I think I think, you know, like Michigan, it might be similar. It's where there's more hunting pressure and there, you know, it's just less older deer. So there's, um, they get just to a certain age, a certain level of experience. And, you know, now they're not in junior high anymore or high school, you know, now they're collegiate level, (laughs) um, in terms of staying alive. Um, and so I just make a list of the deer and it was a two year old, three year old, four year old, my ass. I get it right every time definitely not but most of the time I think I I know about what how old a deer is um and then um I used to manually enter like it was in the morning it was uh you know the temperature at the time the movement I would look it up and I would enter you know 55 degrees
1: um and that got old as I started to get more data so yeah, I actually yeah, before um, before you say yeah. before you say that's the dumbass way take note that's how I'm <laughs> still doing it <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> and I yeah do you sympathize <laughs> yeah yeah
2: absolutely um, and that's um, up until so I started doing this um, hardcore in about 2013 like really like looking at observations and trying to find trends related to weather um, time of year, that kind of thing. Um, here in about 2015, 16, I figured out a way to extract weather data from the NOAA website. It's a government website. Um, and they have locations all across the U S. Um, and I just about guarantee 98% of hunters are within, you know, 20, 30 miles of a NOAA weather station that logs this data. Um, and you you can download it in a spreadsheet format. And now it's, without getting too complex, just using a simple VLOOKUP feature in Excel, um, I type in the date and time for the, the, the sighting, and it tells me temperature precipitation, current, past, and future precipitation, wind speed, wind direction, sea level pressure. um, What else? I'm looking at it right now. Um, Yeah, sunrise, sunset, moon clock uh, position, moon percent, uh, illuminated, all those fun little details to me anyway. So um, yeah, it took a half an hour here and an hour there over the course of a number of years to build that but now, literally, all of the time it takes is data entry for entering the time of the and the date, and you know, there is some setup. You know, it's based on um, you know location specifics. So you have to bring in the data for your you know whatever towns closest to you. Usually, they're airports or or just weather stations in in small towns. And uh, now I, um, you know, I have this enormous amount of data, uh, like. Last year, for example, I have uh, almost 500 data points from two-year-old and older bucks in Iowa, and I have almost that number of data points from two-year-old and older bucks up in Wisconsin, you know, over between, say, August and December of, of last fall, so for the whole fall, and I can look at the trends. You know, I, I look at um, not just location-specific, but I want to look at um, just trends overall, over the, over the course of the rut, um, like when did it peak, um, what influences the peaks and we can really dive into that. Um, I've learned some, uh, interesting things, but so, so before we get further,
1: yeah. So first off to develop something like this, um, you go and you download the weather data from the NOAA website for a specific location. And it gives you the whole, I'm assuming you pick a date range. So maybe October 1st through January 1st or whatever it is. It gives you a spreadsheet with all the data for every single day. You create a tab in your spreadsheet, paste that into the tab on your spreadsheet and then yep. you have another tab of that spreadsheet, which is where you're putting all of your observations. So the dates and the times of the observation, and then through some fancy spreadsheet magic, you connect those two. So that it spits out the data. It, it connects between your date that you put in yep. there and then what the actual weather is. Um, yeah. I do not remember how to use Excel that well, so I couldn't do that myself. <laughs> um but I'm sure there's there's tutorials online, um, or maybe yeah. maybe there's even a way to get a template out there for people. I don't know. But um, yeah, you, there's all kinds of tutorials. I, you can.
2: Um, I'm kind of hesitant to just blast out my 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 spreadsheet to everybody. I've given it to a few people, but um, you know, there's like you. So and I you know say November first at noon, you had a buck run past your control camera. You enter that date and now without instead of having to manually look up oh the temperature was you know 58 degrees it'll automatically poop up it was 58 degrees and this was the barometric pressure and was it raining or not um you know um those kind of things so um again the the weather web yeah weather website is the um it's uh www.nc dc.noaa.gov and then you go to the local climatological data and it's free anybody can do it and you can uh, search by your location and, and download the weather and it's usually recorded in 15 minute or hour intervals um for your location so you know it documents what the weather was and for everyone else's reference i'm pretty sure um wonderground and all the other websites I guess Wonderground doesn't even have historical data anymore. I'm not sh- I don't think they do, um, but they all get it from this NOAA website. I think everybody does. Um, I don't think,
1: I think that's the go-to place to get um, weather data. So, So in your spreadsheets, you have a whole bunch of different metrics or variables tracked. Are these hand-selected because you think that they have some kind of impact, or is this just everything NOAA has and you just allow it all to populate? yeah it's not everything noah has noah
2: has uh tracks so much it's it's ridiculous um they have like heating degree days and cooling degree days which might be in, you know might uh be interest to you if you're a hunter and doing a lot of food plots that's a, a measure of a lot of um farmers pay attention to you know how warm or cool versus average it is but then i just started handpicking things um so it's things that I think are indicators. Now I've looked into some of them, and some of them don't end up being much of an indicator. Um, but uh, it's uh, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I can run it through. You know, I look at day of the week. I look at AM versus PM versus midday, and I just define midday a little arbitrarily as between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Um, um, a couple of things I look at that are location specific. I try to uh, I've just started uh, looking at what direction bucks are headed on camera. So sometimes um, when I'm hanging a camera right in in a bedding area and there's a bunch of beds around, it can be confusing to me, like where they're coming from, where they're going to. And I've started to find trends. So I I enter, say, a a buck's heading from left to right on camera, you know, and I, I can remember what direction that camera was pointed. So I'll enter left right left right, and it'll say oh in the morning bucks are coming from the left in the evening they're you co- know in the afternoon they're coming from the right and then I can that uh you know that tells me a lot more oh, than yeah. um you know just so oh they're you know they're betting over there you know and then they're switching to betting over here so um Sky conditions, I look at sky conditions. It's another stat from NOAA uh, overcast versus clear or versus partly cloudy. Um, and then I really dive into temperature. In my opinion, temperature is the number one external factor you know outside like the rut um, time of year. Like weather factor, it's temperature um, without a doubt. There's nothing else that comes close actually. Um, so uh, in terms of where a deer is and why he's moving um, a certain, to certain places. Um, so I look at temperature, like departure from average, meaning I look at the average temperature for that time of year. And is it, you know, average or is it 10 degrees hotter, 10 degrees cooler? Um, I look at two hour temperature change, which is kind of an arbitrary number, but, um, is that, you know, the, the temperature has a big impact on, um, when a buck gets up and moves to another bed during the middle of the day, if it's warming up or cooling off. So I've learned that. Um, then I look at precipitation, um, both when it's like at the time of the photo, but I also want to know like what it's going to do and then what it was doing before for a few hours before and after, because, um, so, I, so what I found both in Wisconsin and down here. And I'm, I've, and I've heard you talk about it, Mark, I've heard others talk about it. Um, and it sounds like, you know, in Michigan, there's the theory that, you know, older bucks that prefer to move in the rain. What I've found so far is, at least now in Wisconsin, the deer don't move so much in the rain. It's a distinct drop. However, they do really like to move right before and right after a rain. Um, and I think they're adjusting, a lot of time it's adjusting bedding to new locations um, to, uh, to seek shelter. Or leaving and maybe going to feed um, in preparation for the rain or after the rain. So that's what I found. Um, wind direction I look at. That's a very locational thing. So um, it's, it's. But I've also I've looked at all my observations all together for an entire fall. It's actually very eye opening. Just what average wind digre- wind directions are, and this data goes back over several years, but basically a third of the time, the wind is south or southwest a third of the time. The wind is, uh, northwest or north. And then the, the remaining third of the time you're left with west, which actually isn't that a straight west wind isn't that common for this part of the country or some easterly. Um, so, so it's very split up. You usually get a southerly wind or a northerly wind, you know, and occasionally something else. Um, I look at barometric pressure. Barometric pressure is something that I've really dove into. I thought I was going to find actually more than I more than I end up finding. Um, so I look at pressure change, um, but I also look at just like overall pressure. Um, and there's no denying deer really like a high barometer. You get above for this part of the country thirty point two five, thirty point three, and there's definitely um, you know deer on their feet more in daylight. Um, I I should have led with this, but, you know, I'm really looking at daylight photos only. I pretty much ignore nighttime photos because it's just, you know, I'm looking at times I can hunt and deer, you know, um, do move a lot at night. But I really want to know what's making them get on their feet during the day. So, um, if that helps anybody along, I'm really only, ent- I'm really like look- only looking at daylight photos from, you know, during hunting hours, say half an hour before daylight to half an hour after dark.
1: Do you, um, do you track your observations too? Like what you see with your own eyes? Yes. Yep. Yep. I do.
2: Um, and that's actually true. So that's, it's good. Um, but it's kind of tricky, and you and I hesitate to let tell anyone to compare it to your trail camera observations because of your um the size of your what you're observing and because with a trail camera, you're watching you know something fifty feet or maybe at most a hundred feet in front of that camera um and you know a narrow window, whereas if you're sitting on stand um you could maybe record things in bow range you know like because that's a fairly small area but if you're sitting on stand and you know in one stand you might in dense cover you might only be able to see 40 yards or 30 yards and another stand if you can see across fields you might be watching deer 400 yards away so that doesn't really tell you know if they're they're moving over there that doesn't really tell you anything about your spot you know um so um just what you're what you're looking at has a big
1: impact there. Right. You almost need to uh, yeah. you need to append that observation to where the deer's location was, not to yep. your stand location.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop. To get some help, the professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today, or visit us at o'reillyauto.com/slash/meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto O R E I L L Y, o'reillyauto.com/slash/meat eater. ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
2: Yeah, back to pressure. So pressure, deer like a high barometer, but it's not. It's it's uh it's not as big of a trend as I thought it might be. I compare it to like average barometric pressure for the year, which um, I know Mark Drury way back uh, in a couple of his podcasts had, had talked about that, given into that, and it's true. You know, average barometric pressure might be around thirty inches uh, of mercury in early season, and that goes up to you know say thirty point one or uh, or or maybe a little more by November, and um you know so so departure from average is important it's not just um you know 30.3 inches of mer- mercury is screaming high in, in September October but it's not it's high but it's not as high come mid november um when as the atmosphere cools pressure on average gets a little higher um, and then, of course, I dive into the moon, which is everyone's favorite theory, um, and that. So I look at two different things. I look at both, you know, phase of the moon. So um, you know, new moon, full moon, and then also what I call I, I. I probably spent way too much time that this by itself. I probably have spent more time on than any other thing because everybody else has too, right? Um, yes. Moon clock position. So. I call it moon clock position, but, you know, uh, red moon, whatever you want to call it. If a moon's overhead or underfoot to me, if it's directly overhead in my mind, that's 12 o'clock directly underfoot. That's six o'clock. If it's rising, it's nine o'clock. If it's setting it's three o'clock. So oh, that's well. how I break it down. Okay. Yeah. So a good um, it's just, yeah, you know, yeah. It's a you know, and it's not the right way. It's just the way I do it and I can visualize in my head. Um, anyway what have I found I have found absolutely no correlation with moon (laughs) clock position and deer movement so um and that's out of and and I will say I used to be one that I I did think there was a slight correlation I just that was my qualitative observations from sitting on stand man I thought I saw a lot of deer when you know the moon was overhead and underfoot or rising and setting but If it's there, it's such a slight trend and it's so overshadowed by weather, 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 weather information or weather, you know, whatever the weather is at the moment. Um, eh, um, I've about written it off. Um, Moon phase, I've looked at that. Like, do they prefer a full moon or a new moon? And once again, I have not found hardly anything. I've found only one thing that seems to be uh, associated with like moon phase. And that is, for whatever reasons, um, so so I also, I don't just track each observation, but then I graph them on a, plot them on a big graph um, over the course of the fall, so October, November, December, um, and to see when peak activity is. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm getting a whole bunch of deer early November, obviously. That's peak movement. That's the rut. Um, that shouldn't surprise anybody, but um cold fronts there's usually a spike in activity there's no you know cold fronts always as everybody knows, has a big impact on on deer and the bigger the cold front the better and i I'll dive into that later. I'll finish talking about the moon um, the moon um around that full moon, the running moon quote unquote, I am seeing a spike in activity. It's not huge, but it seems to every single time there's a full moon anywhere from You know, mid to late October to mid-November, whenever that full moon falls, I'm seeing, a you know, in a three to five day window around that full moon, Hmm. mature bucks seem to be a little more on their feet more during daylight. Why? I have absolutely no idea. I know there's been you know, telemetry studies that have not found anything. Um, However, I will say um, I think those telemetry studies are pretty limited because of how they measure data. A lot of them I've noticed measure like miles per day. Well, that's not nearly precise enough. You need to dial into either like during daylight and for weather events, you need to dial into one hour or two hour increments to have any uh, you know, uh, clarity on like what a weather event has on an animal, a 24 hour, you know, put it this way. Mo- I'm not surprised. They're not finding any correlation because if you're measuring distance over 24 hour period, they are getting up, they're going to eat, they're coming back, you know, and they're doing that every single day, whatever the weather is, but exactly when they're doing it, well, that has an, Im- that is impacted by you know, environmental
1: factors. That little yep. change is what really matters to yep. us hunters. So if, oh, if, yeah. a, if a buck yeah. moved half an hour early, that might not show up on their, on their big studies, but that sure as heck makes a huge difference for us as a hunter. That's, yeah. that's exactly what I've always yeah, thought. I'm I'm hoping these
2: telemetry studies get better and I know there a lot a lot of them are limited, I believe, by battery life in those collars. They can't be, you know, strapping nine volt batteries onto those deer. Right. So, you know, the more the more data points, more pings, you know, if they're doing it every fifteen minutes or every hour or three times a day, that has a big impact on how often they do it. So I understand it's not it's not anybody's fault, but I'm hoping people start to measure, these researchers start to measure um, in much more frequent intervals and the sky's the limit on what we'll learn about
1: here. So so with all this stuff, all this stuff that you're looking at, uh, I mean, you listed 15 different variables or more that you're looking at. You kind of mentioned a few that seem to have a big impact. Some others don't. When you're actually heading out to hunt or you're sitting at home before your weekend hunts or whatever, and you're thinking through what your game plan is going to be, which one of these actually factor into your decisions? Like, is there a top five list or anything like that, that are the real heavy hitters that you really focus your time and energy around?
2: Yeah. So, uh, number one's temperature. Um, I've really learned that, You know, deer favor cool areas when it's warm out and warm areas when it's cold out. Um, They still, security's top priority. So, you know, they're only in certain areas that they feel safe. But within those, um, like I have a theory, Um, I'm not sure that deer uh, move less when it's hot out. I think they just move in different spots and most hunters aren't watching those spots. So that's part of the reason why everybody, oh, it's a cold front deer moving like crazy. I actually think. Nobody bothers to watch the warm weather spots, um, and a couple of reasons there one they're they're not necessarily where deer spend a lot of the time in the fall you know in the fall it's usually cooler the the cold days outnumber the warm days on average um, and also the cool spots are usually heavier cover, lower down by water um, and uh, people you know you can't see a cold front deer out in a field feeding and you can see them from half a mile away. Um, when it's hot weather, they're seeking shade, they're seeking, uh, you know, cool North slopes in Hill country, uh, which is a lot of what I hunt and you can't see very far in a lot of these areas. So people think, Oh, they're not moving. Well, I've, I've got deer up and walking around and it's 85 degrees, you know, with 90% humidity, I'm getting them on camera. They're, you know, they're probably not running around and running heavily, but, um, they do move, um, but it's usually like, um, so that really has improved my less than, if I'm hunting and it's less than optimal weather, hot, you know, warm weather or whatever. Um, and I used to think, I still don't like sitting on stand and sweating. I'll still call it less than optimal. I just don't like doing it, but um, I will do it. And I've killed a couple of bucks now here with, in you know, warmer than average temperatures in spots. You're looking, you know, shade, cool North slopes, water um often combinations of all those um and uh i'm getting into the deer uh that's where they are and they're getting up and they're moving in daylight they're not maybe moving very far and they're you know they're not walking out into fields if it's bright sunshine um especially you know if they've grown their winter coat um 80 degrees in September is a lot different than 80 degrees in November after a deer it's grown its winter coat. So okay. it's a, you know, it has a huge impact by time of year too. So temperature, um, you know, if it's really cold out, I like the extremes because that really concentrates the deer. Um, you know, I I can't say that I like cotton in super hot weather, but if it's super hot, the deer really stack up. I, well, um, in some of these spots, if it's super cold out they're flipping you know they're getting out of the wind so they're getting on the leeward leeward slopes they're getting down further on the leeward slopes Um, so they're completely out of the wind instead of up close to the top they might get a little down lower but they'll try to they'll seek um, sunshine they will um, you know they'll get if it gets really cold then they'll get up and move a lot more frequently because they have to Um, and of course as it gets colder they need more calories, so they are hitting. They are putting the feedback on more. There's no denying that. So um, the temperature is definitely number one.
1: Um, now, are you saying temperature? That, sorry, yeah. but to clarify, are yeah. you saying absolute temperature or temperature change, or are you lumping that all together? Yeah. So,
2: well, yeah. So uh, all the yeah, all the above. So both temperature in relation to um, uh, average temperature for that time of year so say it's october 1st and it is 60 degrees out and your average temperature is say 70 degrees deer are going to you know um be moving uh somewhat more they'll probably be hitting the food a little more but they'll be really seeking the uh kind of the warmer areas they're they're not going to be in the areas necessarily that um they would be um if it was, uh, you know, say 80 degrees. Um, and just like in November, say, and this is kind of one of my, uh, the light bulb came on a couple of years ago. Um, and this was a Northern Wisconsin hunt. Um, so it's not, not an Iowa hunt. It's a big woods hunt. Um, it was, I was up there early, uh, early November for a rut hunt. And we're hunting around the edge of the swamp um, and I could hear deer chasing out in the swamp and I didn't see a deer the whole day, that first day. And the second day I was like, well, I'm going to go, you know, and I was right up to the edge of the swamp. You know, I really thought I was in it. Lots of sign there, nothing, but I could hear crashing out in the swamp. And the next day I got up um, and I started to just sneak out into this island and long story short, I didn't kill a buck, but I had a ton of action. And it, like, as soon as I started walking in the swamp, you know, it was one of those days, the temperature was nudging 80 degrees in early November. And as soon as I went out of the swamp, it just felt a lot cooler. And the rut was going full door out in that swamp. And there was nothing out um, outside of that because it was hotter. Um, and it wasn't that I was outside the security. I was in the thick stuff but I wasn't down into, into that water. And those deer were running from island to island out in the swamp, (laughs) you know, because it was warmer. And, and, uh, and correspondingly, actually, um, I've hunted that same area. Um, the year after that, it was actually snowing. So it was colder than average. It was spitting snow, miserable weather. I went out and sat, um, the same spot that I'd sat a year ago, a year before that, except it was instead of 78 degrees. It was 38 degrees and I didn't see a deer out in that swamp all day long. I sat there all day long. Um, and then I'd had a camera there and I looked and yeah, there's, they were out there. That was a hot weather spot. They were out, you know, running around in islands and, you know, and uh, from island to island chasing does when it was, um, really hot out. But as, as the temperature plunged, there was significantly less movement out there, and then I think they were out around the perimeter of the swamp, uh, more on drier areas because it was cold and they didn't want to walk around in the water. so um, just little stuff like that. So it's both departure from average temperature and then also change of temperature. and that's really location specific, like is it heating up or is it cooling down? Um, and uh, are they seeking warmth or are they seeking you know cool? So, um, yeah, beyond that, um, yeah, for, for, um, location specific, it's definitely wind direction, um, Deer use the wind, um, there's no no doubt about it. Now, they aren't always just walking into the wind or walking with the wind to their back. Um, although I have seen like up north, it seems like deer favor walking with the wind to their back more often. But it's not a strong trend, but it's every location. Um, and it's I think it's because of wind-based bedding. I'll see a lot more deer with certain wind uh, directions. So um, that's one of my favorite ways to filter spots. You know, it's a, it's an easy way. It's like, oh, this spot, two thirds of the movement was on southerly winds. So you're hunting with a southerly wind. You have to, even if it doesn't seem to work right for you as a hunter, you have to figure out a way to hunt it effectively with that kind of wind. Yeah, Because if it's a southerly wind spot and you're hunting with a north wind, you are wasting your time. So um, that's been a big one for you me. Know that, Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, and I used to too. I, I think back of a lot of hunts that I'd had and I would hunt, um, before I even really understood like the windward versus leeward slope deer. Definitely. Most of the time, favor leeward slopes, um, never say always (laughs) or never, but, um, I would hunt these windward slopes just in case someone doesn't Uh, know. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. Um, so a windward slope, um a a ridge imagine a ridge and the wind's blowing across it so it's blowing from one side to the other so the side of that ridge that the wind is hitting is the windward slope and the side away from the wind so the wind's kind of blowing over the top of your head if you're out uh, you know out of the wind on a ridge that's the leeward slope so um there's many different theories i really haven't made up my mind for exactly why um the uh when the, you know, the deer travel on the leeward side, um, Dan and has a good theory. I think there's something too you know, about a thermal tunnel. Um, I think there might be other things. Um, yeah. Going on there too. Not just that, um, you know, deer basically can smell the whole ridge upwind of them. And then, you know, they, they also can smell and also see often the down the ridge below them so they have the eyesight and the and the scent uh then their nose protecting them um anyway so deer favor leeward slopes and i would hunt windward slopes and i'd have a rotten luck and there'd be deer sign everywhere and why am i not seeing deer there and then you know after a little while and i learned it from the hunting beast which is a great uh, thing, uh, for Pete, I don't hang out there a whole lot anymore only because I have no time left in my day, di- in my life. It seems like to spend on there, but, um, it's a great resource for hunters to learn more about, you know, um, hunting and competitive environments, public land and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the wind direction is huge and that's really, you know, I have, I have spots, you know, for west wind and I have spots for north winds and southwest winds. Um, that's how I filter my, my setups um, based on where the deer are.
1: Would you agree that if we're looking at patterning deer, not by a specific bucks, but if we're patterning areas, locations, is it I'm, my assumption would be that wind direction and time of year are probably the most impactful variables? that would tell you when a given spot would be good versus when it's not. Is that right? Would you, for yep. if I'm looking at locations, are those yep. the two biggest maybe? And,
2: yeah, and it, well and temp- and temperature. Like I I've really learned like um there's cold weather spots and there's hot weather spots. So
1: that's the that's the big three. I, so you're saying it's when, not just we, that deer yep. will move more in general first just no. like they'd be moving I guess my assumption was going to be that you're going to say Temperature would just change deer movement everywhere. But then wind direction and time of year would say, okay, well, this little bedding air picks up with those conditions. But you're saying actually yep. there's gonna be specific locations that are when it's cold, deer prefer this spot. I guess kinda like the swamp example. Yep. Yep, yep. And I've got other examples. I've got
2: um I've got a I've got a really killer bed location picked out on public land here in Iowa, and I have not killed a buck there yet. I'm just waiting, um, for the right buck to be in the area. Um, I've hunted it a couple times, but, uh, it's a hot weather bed and bucks consistently bed there when it's over 70 degrees in October and November. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, you, you can't find it if, if it's colder than average, I've had a camera there now, uh, watching this area for three years in a row all fall. Um, I, I drop it out there late summer and I pick it up in the winter. And in the cold weather, there's rarely a deer uh, in that area. Hot weather, it's, I mean, it's a strong percentage. um, So what about it makes uh, it like that? Yeah, um, it's right above a big spring. So there's a big spring coming out of a hillside Mm -hmm. and it's calm. about halfway down a north slope. So it's in dense shade and it's right above water. So they can get a drink and it's also cooler, like that cool water. Yeah. You go there and you just notice it's five to 10 degrees cooler than if you were at the top of the hill. Um, it's harder than heck to hunt because it's you know kind of a, in a hole. But I think I, I think I can hunt one side of it with a south wind, which of course they favor with a south wind. Not so much, I think, because... The wind kind of swirls. I think it's mostly because south wind is hot, you know, associated with hot weather. So, um, you know, so it's that's the big three. It's time of year, temperature, wind direction. So um, to me and everything else, like I used to think, oh, you know, it's pressure. But pressure, pressure doesn't dictate where a deer is. It might dictate how much they're interested in food. Um, so they might get up a little earlier, um, if it's a good high pressure system, but it's not a big, um, it's, it's not quite the driver that I thought it was. And people should keep in mind, you know, pressure and temperature, um, and wind and wind speed actually all, they all go hand in hand, not to get too complicated, but you know, when you have screaming hard winds, your temp, your barometer is probably moving because that's. You know wind is air molecules going from one spot to another and the reason they're doing that is probably because between a low pressure system and a high pressure system you know so so that they're correlated you know um wind speed's another one um not just wind direction but wind speed um the harder the wind the lower the deer get in the hills in my experience um Especially with cold winds, but in general, all winds, I see them drop down in elevation. Um, and if it's a, you know it's a really screaming cold wind, they may be down in those valleys um, temporarily uh, to seek shelter. So I've I've got a spot or two that if I know I'm a oh, big cold front during the rut with at least 20 mile an hour uh, wind gusts, I'm getting down there and the rut is on down down in the valleys and I could be up on the ridge and freezing my butt off and I wouldn't see a thing.
1: So, um, stuff like that. So if I'm trying to implement a tracking system, kind of like you have here, um, and I'm starting to think about patterning locations in this kind of way. What are some key things to make sure I'm doing? Or I, I mean, there's the basics: like I track a bunch of data, put it in here. Is there anything or any mistakes you hear people commonly make when they talk about how they're trying to track deer movement activity, or any anything you haven't mentioned to just kind of tie up the the tracking part of this? Yeah, um,
2: I guess that, in my opinion, the most common mistake is trying to just follow around an individual deer. Like if you want, it, it's okay to try to to go after an individual deer, but you need to fill a approach that instead of trying to, um, you know, uh, just draw a line on a map for where he's, where he's going. And I know there's some tools that have been marketed for that. It's really, you need to look at like, where is he frequenting and then look at those spots and why is he frequenting, um, you know, in what conditions is he frequenting them? Um, instead of, um, looking at it from the, you know, I guess trying to just, project out a line on a map for where the deer is going to go. Um, You look at like, well, a majority of the time he's over, you know, on this ridge system Um, when, you know, when it's, you know, late October and it's cold weather. And then, Oh, when it was warm weather, I would get him over here, you know, more down in this bottom, you know, that's um, I find a lot more
1: um, value in. So um, if you were trying to target, Sorry to interrupt your stream of thought there. No, but right. if you were trying to target a specific buck, would you change anything that you're doing here from a tracking system? Would you add any variables? Would you ignore any yeah. of them? Uh, anything you'd adjust?
2: That's that's where um, and I and I do. You know, I I try to keep tabs on on individual bucks. I rarely go after one all by itself you know but it's usually like oh there's a couple of bucks in this area that i want to go after um i think the the you you may want to bring in um more data sources so that's where it comes into okay well maybe you want to move a few more cameras into the area um the challenge with this you know i am playing the long game and i know in the majority of the country hunters don't especially on public land hunters don't have the the, the benefit of being able to follow a deer when he's three and four and five years old. And I mean, most three-year-old bucks get killed in Iowa too on public land. Okay. That's not, you know, some get through, but most of them will die. Um, and uh, so uh, if it, what I'm pl- doing is playing the long game for next year, you know, I'm really not looking at this year's, uh, all my cameras. Um, it's, I have a few cameras that I have in more easy to access and maybe a couple (laughs) that I check more frequently, but the vast majority I hang and I literally, I will not check them until the season's over or at least I'm done hunting and I'm I'm picking stuff up. So, um, if you're looking after an individual buck, you know, if you, you know, You watch closely those good up and coming three year olds. A lot of times those patterns change a little bit, but they're still somewhat similar. Um, They definitely get more nocturnal and more secretive when they hit four. Um, But uh, their areas often are the same. Sometimes they do even shift home ranges. Um but uh gather as much data as you can um, you know the more options you have after a buck, the better uh, you don't want to just pin your hopes on just one location you're probably gonna fail because um, especially like once again, I'm targeting betting um you know I'm gonna hunt that spot once um occasionally I might hunt a spot twice, but it's really rare that's ninety percent of my public land kills uh have been first time sets for that location for that year um and that trend i expect to continue so and i used to hunt spots many more times and i just wouldn't have the success um so now i've just basically almost quit hunting spots more than once um unless it's kind of special circumstances and I really think I got in and out clean. Um, and the cleaner your entry and act, the exit by all means, you know, there are some spots you can hunt repeatedly, but it's a very rare spot. I think, um, going most, back, uh, deer will smell ya, you. Know.
1: I was going to ask going back a little bit, um, pivoting away from individual bucks back to locations Um, You mentioned you're typically targeting bedding areas, but are there any other types of places you try to pattern? Like, do you also set, you know, fall, like five month long trail camera sets over typical funnels or anything like that, that you want to see what's happening year after year and you can get an annual pattern off anything other than bedding areas?
2: Yeah. um, Yeah. That's, it's usually a shorter window because bucks, it's all about bedding outside of the rut and even during the rut it's still all about bedding but sometimes it's not just about their bedding it's about the doe bedding so um usually the travel routes that i'm targeting still connect bedding areas they doe bedding areas and such but i do put cameras um like um on good really good funnels um not usually the super obvious rut funnels mostly because in public land other people are always hunting them um, the classic inside corners and stuff uh, I just I just don't see fully mature bucks using them regularly on public land. I, yeah, they may occasionally and you can occasionally kill one but I have a lot higher odds getting into the more um, the harder to see funnels like you got a really long ridge system and on the leeward side there's this great big ditch and basically all the deer are bottlenecked into a ditch crossing you know a, a third of the way down from the top or maybe there's a fence line you know and a tree fell across the fence line and so that's that crossing on the leeward side um so i'm looking for things like that and i'll put a camera and say you know maybe there's bedding up the ridge and bedding down the ridge so i know deer are coming back back and forth through and i'll monitor that so it's not always you know too it's got to do with bedding but it's it's, sometimes it's uh bucks behavior chasing does um and seeking those after, uh, you know, around the bedding areas. So yeah, I, I do. Um, I do that as well. Um, and I do, I don't have much luck trying to determine trends for deer coming out in food sources. Um, so, you know, I I occasionally do have cameras watching food sources, but I don't usually you, I don't usually look at that data that close, um, just because deer have to eat. So, they come out and eat. Um, and they, they may, they may be more likely to come out during the day if it's optimal conditions and they're betting closer by. But, um, I have a lot better luck looking at betting trends than if they're coming out and eating a food source. You know, usually they're, they're going to come out and eat every night. Maybe, maybe you can find a trend or, Oh, you came out in daylight and it was a big cold front, that kind of thing. But, um, and also, um, you actually end up with kind of too much data when you're looking at food sources. Cause if they're on camera every single day, okay. They're on camera every single day. What are you going to do about it? Kind of thing. Um, whereas bedding, Oh, you know, he was using this bedding area for four days out of a seven day window. And then he wasn't there for two weeks and then he was back. Um,
1: that tells me a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I interrupted you when you were talking through some mistakes people made. Did you finish up what you wanted to cover as far as, mistakes of oh, tracking or do you uh, yeah if you did we can move up hunting on. by the
2: moon <laughs> hunting by the moon I'll come out and say it a lot of people I know on the beast are probably mad about that but I don't know I just I've uh, I, I, uh, a lot of people have had success doing it but man I, I just um, after looking at a couple thousand data points I just have not found any correlation between where the moon is and when they're moving um it's and it, not to say maybe it does exist, but the weather is an order of magnitude more important. Um, if he's going to get up that and, and things like hunting pressure, you know, and that's important. I've talked, I've talked about all this stuff, this like hunting pressure. If you're t- looking at big three, um, like that probably comes first, honestly, with a mature buck. Once he's reached that age, he will not move if he doesn't feel, um, safe. So, um, like yeah, for example, in Iowa, um, we have an early muzzleloader season, which runs uh, third week of October or something, just as the rut's starting to heat up, or second week of October, I guess, usually something like that. Um, depends on the how the calendar lays out. Um, and I've learned, you know, there's certain areas that muzzleloader hunt, hunt, hunters will frequent, and yeah, I, I won't get anything on my cameras in that time period and for a little while afterwards. And then deer will start showing back up. Um, and others that actually I see pressure bedding even here uh, in Iowa, where I know we don't have quite the pressure that say uh, you deal with in Michigan, certainly not on public land there. Um, but I see pressure bedding meeting um, when there's a bunch of people in the woods Certain areas deer really frequent because humans just do not get in there. It's just too nasty, or you have to cross water, or something like that. They really, um, you know, and when humans aren't in the woods, you may not see as many deer or mature buck sightings in those areas. So um, it's been eye opening to me. I have a couple of spots that I like to hunt during that early muzzleloader season because human, no other human other than me, gets anywhere near there, and uh, I have. Um, uh, you know, I, and, and, or maybe they do get somewhat near there, but they still can't see it. They're not hunting it and deer know they can move just that extra 200 yards or hundred yards and be completely secure, um, after the humans stink up the woods for a few days.
1: So yeah. an interesting thing as I'm hearing you talk about all this is I follow a lot of this data Similarly, I pay attention to a lot of these things and I really think there's something to it, but we're, we're kind of using it in slightly different ways. It seems like, correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm curious to hear if you think about it in the same way I do sometimes. Um, so it sounds like most of the time you're looking at this data to help you know where to hunt, like when to hunt which spot. And you're finding that a certain wind direction or a certain temperature will lead to the deer movement or the deer Being better in a certain location, coming to a certain location. I've always thought more so of looking at this kind of data to tell me when the chances of the very best, or when's the very best chance that a mature buck will get up and move during daylight. And then when I get those special days, then I target like my sweet spots, like the spots where I think are like the highest odds for other reasons though. Um, Yeah. So I'm probably missing the boat a little bit, maybe, but maybe is what I do in your box of tricks too is that how you're thinking about it as well yeah yeah um does that there, make sense? there are yeah
2: there, there are those optimal days but I've I've kind of learned um that there's optimal yeah it, we definitely are looking at it a little differently you know because I I see optimal days for optimal spots you know and maybe you're just stopping at the optimal days period right. and then you're right. going to go try to find a spot um so everything ties back to like location for me um okay. And, uh, yeah, so that, I guess I, I try to complete that loop. Um, so, um, and I, I, maybe my thinking has, uh, you know, just kind of, uh, evolved a little bit from that. Cause I, I did used to be like, oh man, there's a cold front hit next week, you know, get in the woods, you know, this is the time to hunt my best stand. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know. "Quote unquote best." Well, now I'm like, "What is my best stand?" I have a best stand every every single day that I want to hunt. I have a best stand. I like that. So, um, yeah. So that's a, and I think that really did help uh, help me um,
1: start to think like that. I guess it does depend on how many options you have, right? So, someone who has ten thousand acres of public land can probably have a whole bunch of different options. If instead, for whatever reason, you just hunt fifteen acres you own or something all of a sudden you're yep. limited. Yeah.
2: And that, and that, um,
1: you know, like just to be like clear,
2: I, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of blanket statements made and I have a certain strategy and it's not for everybody. And I, yeah, I do like Iowa doesn't have much public land period. I'm, that's part of the reason I, I love to go up into Wisconsin because then I can I can literally walk all day and still be on public land. In Iowa, that ain't happening. You know, 1,000-acre parcels is humongous. You know, most of the time it's 200-acre parcel. Um, so you're really limited. And even I know, you know, um, Michigan is even more partialized from listening to you. You know, a 60-acre parcel is a big yeah, parcel there. so southern, you know? southern part um, of the state for yeah. sure. And then you go out east and you have a 10 acre parcel. That's a big parcel, you know? So it's crazy, um, how different that, that requires your strategy to be different. You know, you maybe you don't have a thousand acres or 10,000 acres. Um, maybe you have one, you know, 20 acre parcel. I encourage you to get more options. More is better, but, um, you may be limited, you know, you may be limited to where you can hunt, you can just go and hunt. You have to find a different strategy to fit that. This, like I've I've kind of developed this to fit my strategy of I have 10 times as many spots as I can hunt, as I have time to hunt any fall. So um, how do I figure out what are the best? You know, I've scouted my butt off for years to find a bunch of really good spots and I don't have time to hunt them. So, okay, well I have to filter out and try to figure out what, you know, and I, and I know I'm a little bit, I'm wired, (laughs) wired a little bit different because, um, I'm, I'm just fanatical about efficiency, you know, like I'm not a good spot. is not good enough for me. I want the best spot. I want to find the best spot because, you know, it's going to be better than the good spot. So, um, and I'm always thinking like that over the course of, you know, 20 years of hunting, uh, public land. I've, I've, uh, you know, started to, I don't I've, I've just changed my thinking. So. Yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at o'reilly auto parts need your windshield wipers replaced brake light fixed quick service they'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help the professional parts people at o'reilly auto parts are your one stop shop for all things do it yourself and you can find what you need in the store or online stop by o'reilly auto parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto, O-R-E-I-L-L-Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Now, what I'm curious
1: about is if you could now tie a big, nice bow on this for me by walking me through an example or two about how you take something from your data set that you've tracked over a year or two or however many years and then implemented that into a hunt um, and how you picked the optimal spot for the optimal time and, and what that all looks like. I'd I'd love to better understand your whole thought process as you go through that and then execute the hunt.
2: Yeah. Um, so let's see, it's, it's, it's ingrained. It's been ingrained into most of my, uh, well, first of all, um, I haven't hunted a whole lot in the last two years. I've killed a couple of bucks. Um, but um, you yeah, know, I've been go- I'm working full time and going back to school and two little kids and, you know, last year I hunted seven times total and it wore me out. It was pretty pathetic. Um, but the good news is my school is getting done. I'll be done with that and I'll be able to hit the woods a little harder here this fall. So I'm happy to, happy to uh, announce that. But, um, anyway, um, like even last year I killed a buck, um, and it, it was, I think it was the October 22nd. It was right on that full moon. Um, so I was expecting, um, I was expecting more pre-rut activity because of the full moon. Um, there, there's a spot that is, it's a trail corridor, um, and it's used at a high frequency for southerly south and southeast winds for bedding. So it's kind of a warmer weather bedding and it happened to be, um, at that day i think it was uh south uh, south or southeast wind um and uh i knew that from trail camera sitting there for the lab for from the fall previous um and so bucks preferred to bed there when it was a little warmer than average um and uh they did they usually bedded there when, uh, you know, the pre pre rut was, uh, heating up. So in the October 20th to 30th, the pre rut usually is heating up, but it's not linear. You know, as everybody knows who's hunted that time period, it's really, um, on, off, hot, cold, you're either seeing nothing or you're seeing some really good action. There doesn't seem to be much in the middle. Um, I love the pre rut. That's my favorite time to hunt. Um, that the last half of October, really, um, so, um, and I knew that buck was in the area. Um, and you know, I, I still remember he, you know, he came in and I wish I'd have gotten on camera and I, I, in general, I don't have any interest in recording and videoing my hunts, but I, he, I shot him and he ran and he tipped over right in front of the rising full moon, you know? So it was coming up over the horizon wow. just a, a few minutes before, um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, closing time yeah <laughs> you know um so that's one example um i've uh a few years let's see um I, a few a few years before that i like that's that's a good example'cause it was a it, it was a good um a number of years ago um I used to think that deer didn't like to move in the um when the moon was full. And I also didn't like to think, or I I didn't think that deer really um, um, moved as much when it was warm out until I figured out, hey, they're really moving differently. Uh, Maybe they're moving slightly less, but like they're moving differently and you can get on deer when it's warm out. So um, it was definitely eye-opening, you know, it's like, hey, I can have success. It was, you know, 70 degrees as a daytime high in late October, which is a little warmer than average for this part of the country. And, um, you know, there was a big four-year-old, you know, 22-inch wide nine-pointer, you know, up, um, and he was up well before dark um, and then came wandering in. So um, it's it's really ingrained into just about every single you know, one of my hunts has has that background. Um let's see the the I can't remember what I killed the year before. I shot something. <laughs> but it was another story like that. They yeah. all kind of blend together. I understand. Um, That's a good problem to have. That, 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 yeah yeah that um that example i shared of a couple years ago up in wisconsin where you know all of a sudden the rut was on full bore it was hot out and it was on full bore in the islands out in the swamp whereas there was no activity out around the perimeter of the uh the swamp you know and and it wasn't that there was hunting pressure right there it was just they were out where it was cold uh cool um and that's been really eye-opening. So, um, two, three years ago, I shot a yeah. Two, two years ago, as another really good example, um, I shot. This was a late-season hunt, and it was a muzzleloader hunt. It wasn't a bow hunt, but it, we had a real cold snap, and the temperature was about um, about negative five degrees or something like that, daytime high. Um, and I knew deer. Um, I knew, I knew there was a couple of bedding areas that were more open. They were facing the South. Um, they were, the buck still felt secure. They bedded in them. Um, and I actually, um, you know, saw him from a distance and, uh, shot him there. Uh, you know, I was on the far side of the Valley watching the sunlit side of the Valley and there was nothing, no activity on my side of the Valley. Cause I was, and it was cold. I was, I was freezing. Um, in the, on the shaded side of the valley kind of sun was kind of behind me, you know, uh, shining on that southerly facing slope. And, you know, there he was, um, and, uh, you know, picked him off. Um, and it was, it was, I wouldn't have been there if it wasn't for the brutal cold weather we were having. And there was a stiff wind, so there was a pretty screaming wind chill too. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really, you know, it's all conditional like that. You know.
1: So I feel like this is a great, I mean, like my big takeaway for me personally is, you know, it's good to be smart with the timing of your hunts and you don't want to overhunt things and you want to be targeted, of course. Um, That doesn't mean, though, that you shouldn't hunt a lot. If you have a lot of locations to hunt you can find ways to pattern specific locations to know the right spots to hunt, regardless of whether you have the stereotypical dynamite weather, big cold front and high pressure, or maybe you've got hot weather and it's windy. But if you happen to have been tracking all these different locations, You'll start to see these patterns light up. Well, with certain, maybe on the hot days they're over here. On the cool, yep. great cold front days they're over here, and all of a sudden you maybe all of a sudden double your opportunities because you're not just paying attention yeah. to those spots that are great for cold fronts that we all key in on. Yeah, um,
2: yeah, it's not a you know I'm not saying don't hunt. You know, like that's another like oh you know if you're not in the woods you don't kill it. Oh, that's all right, but that's right. But I always add to that. Uh, you know, if you're not in the woods you can't kill one but if you hunt the wrong spot at the 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 right spot at the wrong time you're not going to kill one either yeah. so um like go hunt hunt observation sets that just gives you more data you learn so much more i use, you know now i don't have that much time so i don't hunt observation sets but that's not because i don't think it's effective it's just i don't have much time i strongly encourage people to go sit in a tree where they can see a long ways and you know just watch what deer are doing that gives you more information on stuff we're talking about right now yeah. um but the important thing is when you figure out preferred conditions for a spot stay the heck out of that spot until you have those conditions yeah you know hunt somewhere else
1: so one other follow-up on this idea of if, I, if i'm going to start tracking locations um that means we're setting cameras for you know much longer maybe than the average person is putting them out there. So if I'm running a camera and I put it out there in August, I'm not going to go pick it up till late January maybe. You know, That's a, that's a lot yeah. of time to put a camera out there for. Is there anything you've done differently for those cameras, whether it be how you set them up or the batteries you use or anything, any little like setup tips that we should be thinking about if we're going to start putting a bunch out for this purpose? Yeah.
2: Um, so with cold weather cold weather operate if you're going to leave it there until the cold weather um you, you kind of have to use lithium batteries i've learned that the hard way um you know uh, the standard batteries just uh they croak pretty fast in cold weather lithium batteries are temperature uh they aren't affected by temperature um you also need a good camera um and that you know there's pros and cons you're leaving there a long time so you're worried about somebody walking off with it but um you know i i i like you know my the Bushnell trophy cam it's my workhorse um i just have had really good results with that Browning are fairly good there's a few other brands that i think are pretty much garbage that i won't mention um and uh anyway you leave it um i like to put them up high I've lost, man, like two years ago, I think I had my very first camera stolen on public land, so it's going to happen, but it's actually very rare. Um, I put them up high. Um, I put a climbing stick and get them up there 10 foot off the ground, angled down. You actually cover more area. I've learned if you angle it just the right amount and get it up that high instead of hanging it, you know, three and a half feet off the ground like uh, some people do, and you can, your detection area can get a little bigger. Um, and man, it's very, you know, I've lost a couple of cameras now and that's it, um, to theft. Um, I've had a few malfunction. Um, I've, And this is completely my fault. I forgot to turn on. um, And my my buddy, who is probably going to listen to this, I forgot to turn it on. And I, you know, get up and walk off. And then three months later, I walk up, you know, and it's still on setup mode. And you want to hurt yourself when you do that. Let me tell you. That's
1: devastating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So guilty as charged. Most of us probably have done that. Yes. Yeah. I do know. I I have to. It's a brutal feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so um use a camera that
2: you have faith in, um, and work your way up. Like, I it, I would like just be gnawed with worry if I'd gone straight from checking a camera every two weeks, which I used to do, you know, eight ten years ago, um to you know I would check it more frequently even than that before that to four months, you know. But then I started leaving them a month, then I started leaving them a month and a half, two months, and now um and i have very few failures you know like last year i think i had one camera that failed um part way through um out of a dozen plus so um it doesn't happen uh it doesn't happen very often um you just kind of have to figure out what what works for you um <laughs> uh, i will say in the summer it's much tougher to figure out optimal camera placement. So even though yeah. I do get some cameras out, you know, this time of year, it's only in spots that I'm really, really confident. I know exactly where to put it. Um, I really prefer to wait until like late August into September um, because the vegetation's dying down. And it's so much easier to get them placed because otherwise, yeah, you get it up this and then you're going to have 10,000 pictures of a, a leaf blowing back and forth in front of your yeah. camera, you know,
1: I know. Yeah.
2: <laughs> So I I used to run more cameras in the summer than I do now. Actually, I get a few out, but they're only in spots where, like, either there's just not much vegetation, or you know, I just know this is exactly how I need to put it um, because I've gotten burned a lot on the summertime cameras, and it's harder on your cameras. Ants and um, you know uh, uh, spiders building cobwebs over your you know. Um, over your uh, sensor and stuff like that, or your, or your lens or something like that. I've seen it all. So, um, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've minimized how much I hang in the, in the summer. Um, yeah. Oh, one other thing. So, um, you know, talk about like optimal weather. Um, I will, I will say, you know, I've, I've looked at weather so much here. Um, as everybody knows like cold fronts are good. Um, but it's not just that, um, optimal weather, the worst weather you can have for a fall is like dead average the whole fall. Um, you, uh, I've learned, I really want swings. Yeah. Like I want warmer than average and then I want colder than average. I want, uh, and I want those to last a little while. If those only last a day or two each, it seems like the deer get not confused, but they don't have time to establish any kind of a pattern and, it, it, it's really it just seems a tougher hunting so ideally there'd be like one great big weather system every week you know in my mind like if i could plan out the perfect weather for a fall you know and it would get well warm significantly warmer than average and then you'd have a 25 degree temperature drop and then it would get warmer than average and then you'd have a 25 degree temperature drop every you know five to seven days. So I thought I'd throw that out there. Like that's perfect. You you can have too turbulent a weather if it's all back and forth and the winds, you know, from the south one day and the north the next day and south and north, you know, seesawing. That um that isn't optimal and nor is like south winds for you know two weeks straight yeah. um it's it's definitely um it, it seems deer kind of s- settle into a routine after you know when you get at least two three days of consistent weather whether whether it's warm or cold and then you can get a break in a weather system and you can you can restart those trends
1: yeah. so i thought I'd throw that's something i've observed yeah that's a great point those swings are pretty key so yep. uh Joe, I know you need to run. We've taken a bunch of your time here and uh wanna be respectful of that. So maybe we can get you on again, because there's always more and more I wish we could talk about with you. Uh but it is always a pleasure and uh yeah, no problem. Thank you for doing this, Joe. Yep. No problem. So no. thanks, Mark. Best of luck this season. Let's uh let's stay in touch and I'm very curious to see how I might be able to start doing a little bit more of this because I think you're you're on to you're really on to something here about kind of expanding the types of places that we're tracking, and not just deer, not just the best weather, but also how alternate weather patterns can lead deer to certain spots that maybe we're not paying attention to, so intriguing and good stuff and that is it. I hope all of you fellow deer geeks out there enjoyed this one as much as I did um after talking to Joe, I actually went and started compiling a new data set. Uh, for the number one buck i'm after here in michigan this deer i've been calling tran just logged all of his daytime activity i've got 15 different days worth of daylight activity that i'm now going to be cross-referencing to all this different kind of data that we talked about so uh, needless to say i'm uh i'm excited and uh just uh, can't wait for the season to get here so Thanks for listening, and you can check out more by heading over to themeeteater.com, which is where all the new podcasts are going. It's where my new articles are going, where future new videos are going, as well as all the rest of The Meateater Network's great podcasts and contributors. You can see articles from the baritone himself, Spencer Newharth. You can check out our podcast with Steve Renella and Ryan Callahan and Ben O'Brien and April Vokey, um, all sorts of good stuff out there. And uh, I think you'll find a little bit of something no matter what kind of person you are. So with all that said, thank you for listening. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
0: I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill.